I'm actually going to come back to Acts uh, chapter 17. I started it this morning. I'll give a brief review because several of you weren't here for that. And um, coming back to this book, I've kind of been in and out of it since I've not been in full-time ministry, but I would like to finish it. And uh, hopefully in the next 10 years that'll happen. If the Lord tarries and I'm still around. All right, Acts chapter 17. Why don't we read the verses? It's kind of a long chapter, and then I'll give a brief overview of where we went this morning and where we're headed um, in this hour. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them And for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along Some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received the pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily, to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the, good, that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now what we're reading about is what's typically called the second missionary journey of Paul. He is now in areas that he's not been before. In the beginning of this journey, he goes back through Lystra and Derbe. He's strengthening the churches And then he's trying to move eastward and northward into Bithynia and Myasia. And the Lord is saying, no, no, I don't want you to go to Myasia. I don't want you to go to Bithynia. And he's wondering where he's supposed to go. And we find out earlier in the book of Acts, when he lands in Troas, that he sees a vision, a Macedonian man calling out to him, come over and help us. So he has clear direction at this point. He's to go to Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece. And that's where we find him in chapter 16. He's in the city of Philippi. 
You remember the great story of the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? The girl who was possessed and being used as a means of gaining money and material things by wicked people was set free. And a church was established in Philippi. It was also the place where Paul and Silas were beaten by the authorities, whipped and thrown in prison. And even in prison, Paul and Silas, the Lord is drawing near to them to assure them of His presence. And even feeling the pain of the whipping and the beating, they're singing praises to God in the jail. Their hearts are overflowing with the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the joy of the Lord that even in the midst of pain, they're singing the praises of Almighty God and their Lord and Savior. And we noticed this morning just briefly the fact that though they were ill-treated in Philippi, they didn't use this as a deterrent to going to the next city and the next to continue ministering in Macedonia because the Lord had given them a clear vision and call to be there. And Paul knew that along with the preaching of the gospel would come suffering. The way they were treated was not a sign somehow of a change in the will of Jesus. They pressed on from Philippi. And here we find him in Acts 17, coming to the city of Thessalonica and then to Berea, doing the same thing Paul always did, going to the synagogue and preaching the gospel. Because needy sinners in this part of the world needed help. And you know, I just made the comment in the introduction this morning that may we see the world this way, as crying to us for help. We who've been given the answer to meet man's deepest problem, their sin problem. His name is the Lord Jesus. It's the gospel. And rather than being annoyed with sinners and fed up with sinners and, and disgusted, and these are all ways that I have felt, we should pity them as those who have been darkened and blinded by the God of this world, and those who are in need of the gospel, no matter how they respond to it. You know, the godly image of Stephen being stoned for preaching the gospel, and he prays for those stoning him, Lord, don't hold this against them. May that somehow our hearts be enlarged to know something of, of these men in their hearts for lost people for needy people who need to hear the gospel. Thessalonica is a bustling trade city in the ancient world. The Ignatian Way was paved through that city uh, to make trade routes for the Romans easy and soldier movements from the east, uh, from the west to the east easy. The road went all the way from the western part of Greece in the north all the way to modern-day Istanbul in northern uh, Turkey. So it was a common way of trade, and Thessalonica is one of the largest cities. He passes through two other cities. We don't know why, but he heads to the biggest ones, and this was the pattern of Paul to preach the gospel in this place. There's a synagogue there, and according to Paul's custom and practice, Luke tells us this was ordinary for Paul. He went into the synagogue and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So in the synagogue, it's not just Jews who are there. There are God-fearing Gentiles too. So really, Paul teaches us how to minister to people who have some level of biblical literacy. 
The people in the synagogue are not completely ignorant of the Old Testament Scriptures. They're there to hear the Scriptures. They're, here, they're there to hear from God and the leadership of those who are in the synagogue, whether they be Greek or Jew. And the Jewish leadership in the synagogue welcomes them in. There were prominent women among this gathering. There were probably, no doubt, Greeks who had means and money. And perhaps this money flowed into this synagogue as these leaders taught the people who were there who wanted to learn about God. They were supposed to teach them the ways of the Lord. So these people had some level of biblical literacy, and Paul uses the Scriptures to prove to them, to try to reason with them, and to show them two things. And we looked at this more in detail this morning. That the Christ, the Old Testament promised Messiah, Christ, is going to be a suffering Christ, a suffering Savior. Many of the conceptions of the Jewish Christ, the Messiah, in the first century, was that he was going to come and bring back the nation to a position of political prominence and glory, ruling over the world like Solomon was in his day. And he was going to be a powerful king, and a king who was going to put down all the enemies of Israel and raise Jerusalem and Zion back to a position of prominence in the world. So the first task at hand Paul has is to show them that the Christ is going to be a suffering Messiah. That's a pretty tall task. That's a pretty difficult thing to do. That's a pretty gutsy thing to do. Like, how would you like it if you were given that responsibility? Go into this place and try to convince not just the people attending the synagogue, but the leaders that the Christ they're expecting is completely different from the way they're thinking about it. That they're going to have to radically change their concept of who the Christ is, what he's going to be like, and why he's going to come into the world and what he's going to do. That actually the Christ is coming to suffer. Oh yeah, and by the way, the second thing, convince them that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. That was the second thing he did. And he did it all from the Scriptures from the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul was not above the Scriptures. No preacher, no pastor, no one who teaches another person the things of God is above the Bible. We are all under the authority of the written Word of God. Paul himself. And so the thing he was doing as well was showing that Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, is not a new cult leader. He's the promised one. His coming is rooted in the Scriptures. What the Scriptures say about, G about the Christ is fulfilled in Jesus. And it's a beautiful description in these passages of Paul. In, his, in, in, in him seeking to prove this, he's laying the Scriptures down on one side and laying next to it the life of Jesus. So he's preaching the Scriptures, and he's preaching how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these passages that speak about the coming Christ. And he's preaching the Gospel. And he's telling them about what Jesus did. How he commanded the wind and the waves, and they obeyed him. How he gave blind people their eyes back. How he literally 
revealed his authority over the demonic world and cast demons out and how the demons shuddered when they were in the presence of Jesus. Have you come, Lord, to torment us before the time? He was telling them a lot about Jesus. Not only that he was the Christ, but that he was the eternal Son of God too. A tall order. Something we can't do without the help of God. If you think about the things we're seeking to convince men of, like we don't have the power to do that in ourselves. We need the Lord to bless that witness and that gospel. That sinners will repent and believe. So he's preaching Christ, and he is preaching Christ to people who knew the Scriptures and proving Jesus to be the Christ. We see the gospel power of his ministry in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded, that is of the Jews, and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So a number of the Greek non-Jews who were God-fearers, many of them believed and only a few of the Jews. Very interesting because we'll see um, a little bit different uh, response and result in Berea in a few minutes. And then we move on to the gospel persecution which we began to open up in verses 5 through 9. And that's where I want to start and pick up uh, in this next hour. And we talked about how the gospel power, these influential Greek people who were saved and who repented, um, were these people represented in the Macedonian call vision that Paul saw? Was the help that they needed tied to the fact that they were sincerely interested in finding God, but their Jewish leaders in the synagogue were using them to gain money from them? for what was theirs, for the honor that they gave them. And they were crying out to be saved and they needed someone to come and preach the gospel in sincerity and in truth. Was this an answer to their prayers, this vision that Paul saw when he was directed to go there? It could very well be. Well, the gospel persecution is tied to the Jews' jealousy. But the Jews, we read in verse 5, became jealous taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Couldn't find Paul, couldn't find Silas, but they could find those who were publicly associated with them, like Jason, who was now housing this little newly formed church, right, most likely. And they go to Jason's house, and they arrest him and some others. They couldn't get the leaders, but they'll take some who were associated with them who were part of the newly established church, publicly identifying as those who believed in Christ, and they drag them before the city authorities. Now make no mistake, brethren, as we observe this gospel persecution in Thessalonica, that nothing is new under the sun. And the gospel rejection is not an intellectual rejection, but a moral and spiritual rejection. It's not that Paul's arguments for Scripture weren't convincing enough. It's that they were too convincing. That these Jews were cut to the heart. And these Jews knew that what they were preaching was going to result 
in them losing people attending the synagogue. It wasn't that his preaching didn't make sense and that he was unable to prove the point. It was that his preaching was convicting these men of their sin. And it called them to give up their wicked ways. And for leader and those in attendance in this synagogue to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The Gospel meant giving up their nice life, their means of getting honor and money, and the things this world offered them, the things they truly lived for. They were jealous that they were losing congregants to Paul and Silas. That people were believing the message and were most likely going to leave the synagogue and worship. It's amazing that people like this exist. Can you believe it? People who use religion for material gain. It's shocking. People who use religion for the glory they get from the people who attend their churches or places of worship. I can't believe that that some leaders are only interested in how many people are in the pews and, and they don't really care about the people themselves. It's more about the size of the church. It's more about the comments that they get. It's more about the social media attention and the followers that they have. Do people like that exist? Do politicians like this exist? Is there carryover into that world? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what these men were all about. They responded to Paul as the Jews in Jesus' day and as the Jews in Jerusalem and religious leadership in Jerusalem responded to Christ. Right? The gig was up when Jesus came. He called them out as the hypocrites that they were. You honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from Him. You pray long prayers, not because they're coming from souls enlarged and on fire for God and out of love for people, but to be noticed by people that they would give you honor and glory. You do good works, not for the good that will result for the people you do them for and the glory that will be brought unto God, but to be seen as someone who's really good. And wow, I wish I was as good as that person. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, not because you're so careful to obey God out of love to God, but so that you would be seen and receive honor from God. He goes into the temple and overturns the money changers' tables and says, you've turned this house of prayer, my father's house, into a robber's den. You're utilizing God and religion for money. And of all the people on earth, you make God the sickest. And he revealed his wrath against it. Once again, the Macedonian man, does he represent these people who were being misled, abused, and used for what they gave to the religious leaders and they needed to be saved from them, certainly from their sin, but also from the blind guides who were leading them 
And then they stir up the mob. Boy, this is really shocking too. People using a mob, you know, there are people in every society who are on the edge, like dynamite. And there's enough in them that's discontent that it just takes a little bit of fire and they're ready to flip the city over and turn it inside out. There are people out there in every city and in every culture who are easily inflamed and easily provoked to do evil. Just give them a good speech. Give them a couple drinks. We're going to go beat some people up. We're going to go start raising it in the cities. Have we not seen this? But look who's behind the mob. It's religious people. Religious leaders who are supposed to be the examples of those who serve the Lord going out into the cities and once again manipulating and using people to serve their sinful, wicked purpose. To try to drive Paul and Silas out of the city and put down this uprising. And what was it? A newly established church of Jesus Christ. And to squelch it, to put it out. I don't know about you, but this sounds really demonic to me. Because it is. Behind these guys is Satan. Remember in Revelation, I think it's chapter 12, where it talks about the dragon going after the woman's child and the child is swept up to heaven and he's angry. And he goes after the woman's progeny, right? And he's going after the church now. He can't go after Christ anymore because Christ has defeated him and is now exalted to the right hand of the Father, but he can go after his church. And that's what we read of in Acts. Satan following Paul around. The kingdom of darkness, the gates of Hades, trying to withstand the advance of the gospel as Paul is preaching. And as Paul goes from city to city, from synagogue to synagogue, the gates of Hades are crumbling before the powerful preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Satan is losing a foothold and losing people to Jesus Christ. And his kingdom is suffering and failing and losing. And he's not going to sit back and watch it happen without a so the religious leaders go out into the cities and they get them all in an uproar. And some people, it doesn't even matter why you want us to be in an uproar and why you want us to loot and pillage and do all the things we do. We're just going to do it. And the crowd does it. This is the mob that the founders tried to save us from in the putting together of our Constitution in our country, politically speaking. And they have always been used by others with sinful motives and sinful go goals. Wicked men from the marketplace. People who are ready for mischief and rebellion. Who don't need a lot of provoking. It's shameful to see how human beings are used for selfish, political, and sinful ends. Certainly this is the worst case scenario. 
against the kingdom of God and Jesus, spiritually speaking. Religious leaders doing it, but it's sickening when anybody does it. And it's happening. Don't be misled in our own day. It's an abuse of people. It's a form of abusing people and not loving people to stir them up for your wicked political goals. And these leaders of the synagogue were masters at it. It's a tactic of Satan and it's been used for centuries. Thirdly, those who were upsetting the city of Thessalonica, these who were upsetting the city by stirring up the crowd and the city authorities, turn around and accuse Paul of doing it. Isn't it amazing? The very thing they're doing, they're saying Paul is, is the one responsible. What they can't do to Paul and Silas and Timothy, they do to Jason, a believer, probably a Jew, whose name was Joshua and changed his name to Jason, some of the commentators suggest. One of the Jewish believers, one of the few, who it seems opened up his home to the ministry of the apostle. He's dragged out and is accused as an accomplice, as an accomplice. This is what Paul, no doubt, knew might happen in Philippi. Remember when he's beaten and thrown into prison and then he leverages his Roman citizenship? He probably did that to send a message to the authorities. As he knew he was going to leave that church of believers in Philippi, be careful who you touch. One of these could be a Roman citizen too. It wasn't for himself, most likely. It was for the church he left behind. Well, now what's happening at Thessalonica? Maybe the brethren at Philippi were spared. They can't get their hands on Paul, but they'll get their hands on those who believed his report. Just understand that. It's not just the leaders of the churches who will be taken away and thrown into prison first. It's those who attended too. When you're a church member, it's a public confession of faith that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you were a supporter and a believer in the message these pulpits preach. And yes, the leaders will go first, but so will the congregation. So will the congregation. It's easy to be a Christian in our day at present, getting harder, but we can see the clouds coming, can't we, brethren? We can see the accusations coming against true believers. Is it hard to imagine that we will be the ones blamed for the, or the, all the ills suffered in America? That we will become the scapegoats? I mean, it's okay to believe things as long as you don't impose it on others. As long as it's not the one faith, then you're okay. But we can't accept that, can we? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's one way to God. His name is Jesus Christ. That message is what's going to get us in trouble. The exclusiveness of it. Okay? And even though in following Christ, we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and soul, souls, and to love others as ourselves, what nation wouldn't want a people who strive every day to love others as themselves. That's what George Bush told the leader of China. Why wouldn't you want people to be Christians? Makes sense, doesn't it? Well, because it's too convicting. It's a reminder that I'm a sinner and I need to repent and get right with Christ too. So they're accusing Paul of doing exactly what they're doing. 
This is Satan. He can't get his hands on Jesus. can't get his hands on Paul. But he can get his hands on Jason and the other believers. And he'll do anything he can. So this is what happens in Thessalonica. The whole city is turned upside down. There is gospel preaching. There is gospel power. There's also gospel persecution. And Paul and Silas move on to Berea, which we come to now. And we still see the same pattern there. The gospel preaching in verses 10 and 11, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. I mean, these guys are not going to stop. It's just thrown in prison in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, enraged Jews on their tail. They're going to keep preaching Jesus. And they're not afraid to go right back into another synagogue. And it says here, the description of this place is a little different. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. This is the description of the Jews in Berea, particularly. And this is how they were different from those in Thessalonica. These guys, it seems, valued the Scriptures. And maybe put value upon the Scriptures above the traditions of men which were emphasized in Thessalonica. And the Scriptures were kind of drowned out by the teachings of men. These guys were more noble-minded because they understood, to some degree, the value and authority of the Word of God. And Paul is preaching the Scriptures, and these guys are searching them. Okay? A little bit different scene there. They're more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For two reasons. They receive the Word with great eagerness. When Paul says he's going to open up the Scriptures, this church is on the edge of its seat. That's what they go to synagogue for. That's why they go to church. They don't want to hear a preacher. They don't want to hear a man. They don't want to hear the traditions and teachings of men. They want to hear the word of the living God. And there's a different spirit in Berea. This is why they're more noble-minded. Paul says, okay, guys, we're going to open up the Scriptures. Forget the traditions of men, the oral traditions of the rabbis. We're going to go right to the source, the thing these rabbis are supposed to be speaking about. Let's go right to the heart of the Scriptures and see what they really say about the Christ. The Christ actually is going to be a suffering Christ. Yes, He's going to be a reigning Christ. But in His first coming, okay, He's going to suffer. And He's going to suffer For Jews and Gentiles, both are in need of salvation from their greatest enemy, which isn't Caesar, it isn't Rome, it's your own sin. From their greatest enemy, which isn't outside of themselves, but guys, guess what? It's right within you. It's your own sinful heart. Maybe he went to Psalm 51. Maybe he goes to Psalm 14. You know, God looked down from heaven to see if there's any who do good. And they all fall short of the glory of God. There is not one who does good. Oh, we like sheep, Isaiah 53, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him. Who's the him, guys? My servant. Who's my servant? We all understand who my servant is, guys. Now come with me. Remember the catechism question when you were a kid. My servant's the Christ, right? Yeah, my servant. 
was pierced through for our iniquities. Pierced through. How did that happen? Let me tell you about Jesus and how he's the fulfillment of this. So not just again that Christ is the suffering Christ, but that he, that Jesus is the Christ. And he's got through his scriptures and they're going to the book and they're seeing if what Paul is saying is true. Doing the same thing, but a little bit different. They're eager to hear the word and they're searching the scriptures too. See, this is the mark of godly, God-glorifying, disciple-blessing preaching. It's not about the preacher. It's about this the word of the book, the scriptures. And it's not about me saying, hey guys, when you come to church, just leave your Bibles at the door. Come on and sit down. We're good. I'm going to save you from having a turn. Okay? Do it all for you. Just listen here. No. Bring your Bible. And you search your scriptures while I'm preaching them and see if what I'm saying is true. Okay? I don't have to hide behind any kind of personality hide behind popularity, hide behind anything. What I want to tell you, I want to do open and publicly and not in a dark secret somewhere. You search your Bible and see if what I'm saying is true. If it's not true, throw it out. If it is, accept it. You see, the Apostle Paul did the same thing. He did the same thing. He was under the authority of the Scriptures, just as the ones he was preaching to. He publicly preaches Jesus is the Christ. And the Christ must suffer. And we see the gospel power in verse 12. There were many of them who believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Isn't there a difference here? Many of these Jews believed. Where few believed in Thessalonica. God blessed their eagerness to hear the word. God gave them that. He blessed their daily searching of the Scriptures. He blessed the preaching of the Apostle. And many of these Jews, these God-fearing Jews, believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. What a blessing to see the success of the Gospel. To see sinners repent and believe. To see this unbelievable message believed and people saved. And then we see the gospel persecution in verses 13 through 15. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. They walked the three-day journey, the 60-mile hike down to Berea to try to put out Paul and Silas and to put out his influence there. They're coming down. And immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command from for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They left. So Paul finds himself in Athens. And he literally can't camp out for too long in one city because he's persecuted on to the next. And as Satan persecutes Paul and you know, pushes Paul out to another city, the only result is the gospel advances. And it's preached to more and more people. 
and it's like the persecution is growing the church. People are hearing about Christ and he's more and more emboldened to preach it. It's a wonderful thing. So we talked about something of the manner of the way the leaders in Thessalonica were perhaps manipulating those who were God-fearers and those who seemed to be interested in learning more about this Jewish God and about, and about learning about Him and maybe being saved by Him and how Paul comes in and gives them the true message and they believe and they lose all these synagogue attenders. And their response seems so disproportionate. Like, why are they chasing Paul down to Berea 60 miles away? And I'm suggesting that perhaps Paul has cut off the supply of funds, has decreased the size of their church. So not only are they going to get less honor, they're going to get less money. And in doing that, perhaps Paul has exposed the wickedness of these religious leaders. Well, what makes Paul different? And the reason I believe all of what I'm telling you in regard to perhaps why they responded like this is I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. And I want you to hear with me, Paul, as he engages the Thessalonians in this letter and as he writes this letter to them. Now, it says that for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Does that mean he was only there for three weeks in Thessalonica? I, I find it hard to believe based on the letter he writes in 1 Thessalonians. Now, he reasoned in the Sabbath for three weeks, but perhaps had to leave the synagogue after three weeks because he was driven out by the religious leaders and perhaps continued to minister to the church in Jason's house for weeks and weeks on end, maybe a few months. We don't know exactly. Okay? But he was probably there beyond three weeks. And this letter might have been written to the Thessalonian believers in church from the city of Athens when he was there. And you think about how he had to leave Thessalonica under cover of darkness, running for his life. And what he thought about those he left behind who couldn't run, Jason and the other believers. Now, how would a true man or woman of God think about the people they left behind? Would you be concerned? Oh, I think you would. If you had to leave this church and the church was left behind and they couldn't leave and this church was being persecuted and suffering for their witness. Let me tell you something. Your body would be gone, but your soul and heart would be right here. Because you love God's people. Believers have a natural desire as born-again Christians. A natural love for other believers. A natural concern that God gives them because they are the children of the living God. And we're concerned about the church. We're concerned about the persecuted church, aren't you? Yes. Our hearts are with him. You, you listen to Paul's ministry as he speaks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If I can find it here. <laughs> here we go. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God 
amid much opposition. So they kept preaching, though they were opposed. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Now what is he saying here? Our exhortation to you doesn't come from this motive. As perhaps those of the religious teachers you were used to. That's where it came from, right? It seems he's setting himself apart and explaining the distinction between himself and his ministry and those of the false religious leaders. It's not by way of deceit or impurity, or error. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. We didn't come to you preaching to somehow trick you for your money. or with flattering speech. Nor do we see glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. He says, even though we're in positions of authority, we didn't throw it around and expect you to honor us and, and give us special names and treat us as such. Even though we're in a position of authority, Christ has placed us in it. We didn't throw it around and abuse it. But we proved, he says in verse 7, to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. And he's telling them, remember how we ministered among you, how we loved you and tenderly taught you and, and cared for you and minister to you, it, it was like a mother tenderly caring for her own children. She doesn't want anything in return. She just wants to bless her kid. She just wants to love her kid. It's because we had an affection for you. You had become dear to us. And we wanted to give you the gospel and even our own lives. Apparently there was evidence that Paul and these guys were willing to sacrifice themselves. For these sheep, for these people, for you recall, he's bringing back to their remembrance, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We didn't ask for sustenance, money, or food. We worked and labored with our own hands so that you would never think in the preaching of the gospel we wanted anything from you. in distinction from how they had been treated perhaps before. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, 
They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Do you get what he's saying? We don't want what is yours. We don't want your things. We don't want your honor. We want for you to be blessed by the God who's blessed us. You are our joy, glory, and crown. That is a leader of people who passionately loves his people and preaches for their benefit and their joy and their blessing in this life and in the next. And not for what is theirs, but for them. That is the heart of true gospel ministry. And it's set apart from the false shepherds out there and the wicked and deceitful religious leaders who use people to grow churches for their material gain, for their honor, and for their glory. Both of those people exist. Make sure the people who occupy this pulpit are of the character of Paul and not the religious leaders in Thessalonica. I would never want to lead a people who envision are illustrated as people who need help. There are many people sitting in churches who need help. That is a sad thing because of the abusive leadership that's over that. This is also a sign of a godly preacher. He doesn't care. He does not care whether you approve of the message or not. It's about whether God approves. And whether people stay or go, that's God's doing. That is freeing. And you're not charged to manipulate people to grow the church so that you can be supported. I'd rather never be supported and have a church of few, but it's under the blessing of God than to be fully supported and have a church full of people who are not God's people. They're something else. It's freeing. It's liberating because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God opens up his hand. I read in scripture, beautiful illustration of the Lord bending down to earth. He opens up his hand and he feeds every living thing. The birds and the beasts. You've got to have a meal for Adam today, Lord. <laughs> You're feeding the cattle and the birds. You've got to have something for me, right? I mean, where is people? Is he going to feed them and not us? 
We have no worries about being provided for if we seek first the kingdom. I just love the heart of Paul here because it's in total contradiction to what they were used to. And he could look to his life and say to them, remember this, remember that. And we came to you in the spirit of a mother tending to her kid, her nursing baby infant, and as a father who loves his children. And that is the spirit of true gospel ministry. And you know, the sweat and the loudness and the worked upness, you know, it's because a lot of times it doesn't happen. It's not a worked upness and an excitedness against you people. It's, it's against the hypocrites out there. Right? This was what Paul was about. His joy was connected to the joy of the people he ministered to. They were his crown and his glory and his joy. That's the heart of true, gospel-motivated, genuine ministry. And I would say, look, even though it's tough to find, it is real and it is out there by God's grace. We have a man in this pulpit of the spirit of the Apostle Paul, do we not? I don't get the sense that he's using us. We're barely paying the guy. (laughs) He still wants to come. And he's happy to be here. Makes me happy that he's happy to be here. Does it make you? I mean, we're glad to have him. They do exist, even though they're few and far between. But don't settle for anything less. And may God continue to use such men and use the church for the advancement of his kingdom as we see he did with Paul. He's still saving sinners, brethren. May he increase our faith to believe that. that, And may we see that in this place as we continue to serve him. Let's pray.